talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Lisa Poleski and Dave Woodard are in the newsroom. Will Erskine is on the board. Can everyone stop whining about their politics and just let us kids go back to school on Monday in peace? Sheesh! Here's Scott Thompson! Is that directed at me? Hey! How you doing? Sorry, I'm trying to do 12 things at once here. Uh, good afternoon. It is 3.09. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine is on the board in the newsroom. Lisa Pleski and Dave Woodard reporting on the world going round. Feel free to jump into the conversation because they will join us around the big round table uh, coming up after the 4.30 news. And if you want to put something on the table... For us to chat about, and there's no shortage of things, send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com, and the phone lines are always open. Of course, yesterday, all people were talking about was Prince Andrew, and of course, we know of uh, the allegations of sexual misconduct and hanging out with uh, U.S. financier Jeffrey Epstein and and where that all went, and uh, obviously a civil lawsuit that is uh, filed against Prince Andrew, a result of all of that. Uh, he has renounced his military titles and patronages, returning them to the Queen. What does that all mean? Let's head o- over to our Europe Bureau Chief, Crystal Gamansing, for Global News. She is with us now. Crystal, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Hi there. Happy New Year, yes. And Happy New Year to you, Crystal. Um, so what does this mean with the Prince losing or renouncing his titles and patron- uh, patronages? What does this mean? Well, basically, it means with his upcoming court case, the civil case in the United States, is that he will be fighting it as a private citizen, not a member and an active member of the royal family. And that's an important distinction because it then sort of separates the royal family at least a little bit from what is going to play out in, in uh, in the United States. And does that basically mean they're not paying for it? That is still an interesting question. We don't know if that is the case. Um, money, when it comes to the royals, is is a big deal, especially here in the UK. And there's a lot of questions around, you know, how much money they have and, and where does it go. Um, while it may not be uh, royal funds, the, the Queen could still obviously help out her son in, in the uh, financial costs with this. But because it is, he isn't going to be an active royal member, we might not actually get that in information he wasn't doing much anyway he had pretty much stepped back uh, stepped back what's different uh is he still a prince or would he still be a prince well, he has, uh, he has not necessarily lost, but he won't be using the title of His Royal Highness, and that's sort of one of those formalities here. He wasn't really active anymore. He hadn't been in the public eye, at least, you know, undertaking official duties. Um, now with him returning his military affiliations and his patronages uh, and not using the His Royal Highness anymore, it sort of changes him in the, in the idea of being an active um, and, and member of the royal family in good standing. So that does give the family some separation, which, you know, is needed considering uh, what he's potentially up against in the courts in the U.S. Uh, Is the royal reaction designed just to create space between the two, or are they genuinely, we don't, we're ticked with this guy, he's on the outs. I mean, is one more formal than the other? 
I, I don't think we can actually answer that question with a whole lot of accuracy. The royal family is um, very private, and they only say what they want to say. So even the insiders uh, get the information that you know somebody in within the household wants out. So we know that it looks like the queen is doing this as an active step. However, this has been an ongoing case for a number of years. So at any point in time before this, she could have asked for him to return those, uh, you know, very key, high-profile and important uh, honors that he held. So, you know, we maybe it was because of the judge's decision, but there was also a letter from 152 uh, veterans in, in the U.K. saying, mm. hey, w- we want you to remove these honors. If, if this was any member of the, of the armed forces, they wouldn't have been able to still wear, wear their uniform or, or any other medals. What is the reaction in the UK Um, uh, and what does this do for the Queen's celebrations coming up? Yeah, 2022 is the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, 70 years on the throne. It is a huge accomplishment. So this entire case and the fact that he will be uh, having to defend this case somehow in the United States does sort of, you know, derail plans and attention that people would like to have it sort of as a happy celebration. Uh, so this is tarnishing that. And our royal expert made a point of saying, you know, right now, Prince Andrew, the Duke of York, toxic for the royal family. So, you know, it, it does sort of cast a light that the family would not like to have on them at the moment, but it does give a bit of separation. People in the UK um, are are sort of... they obviously are saying that, that Prince Andrew should answer these questions, that he should have answered these questions before, but they have support for the Queen. And that's often the divide that we've seen, is, uh, mm. we see out here. It's support for the Queen, relatively steady, um, support for some of the family members who are creating scandals. Usually they're not seen in such a fond light. Any speculation about the outcome of this trial? Obviously, it's a, a civil situation. Uh, will there be a deal? Does it matter? The brand is damaged either way. No speculation from me as an active journalist. Uh, we can say that, um, you know, we, there has been talk from uh, legal experts kind of breaking down, will this result in a settlement? Uh, we have heard from uh, lawyers in the U.S. saying, you know, they're not interested at this moment in a settlement, but it could go that way. So uh, exactly what will play out in the American court system for the civil case, we, we just don't know. Is this enough to damage the monarchy or, you know, because many are saying whether it's, you know, should it be kept? Should they move on? Uh, But that being said, you said lots of support for for the queen, if not necessarily everyone else or or certain individuals. Uh, Does this does this damage, you know, the question if once she passes, if this will still be worth it all? You know, I think it's a, it's a question that comes up every time that there's some sort of issue with the royal family. And it, you know, we, we tend to have a short memory, but we have to keep in mind the Queen has been through scandal after scandal. Yeah. We just take, uh, you know, the Duke of York. It was, you know, maybe 10 years ago that the scandal was, you know, him and his wife at the time, Fergie, splitting up. So there have been many royal scandals. They have been of all nature and sizes, and and uh, the Queen has always managed to uh, hold on strong and, and maintain support. Uh, we saw that support sort of increase uh, when everyone saw her sitting alone after uh, Prince Philip's uh, funeral. So it kind 
kind of ebbs and flows, but the support for the Queen herself, always very strong. What will happen if and when she passes, uh, we just don't know. But yeah. so far, the people are in support of her, not so much of Prince Andrew. 70 years, she's seen a few things. Uh, who knows? Uh, speaking of Fergie, any has anybody heard from her? Any does, Is she in the public at all? Any thought there? No, we haven't heard from really any member of the royal family in relation to the the, the latest developments with Prince Andrew. Uh, Prince Charles was asked about it. He did not comment. That is sort of how it usually plays out. The Queen will put out an official statement through Buckingham Palace, um, and then everyone sort of just falls in line and, and uh, you know, keeps quiet uh, and waits for another official statement. Mm. But I don't expect to hear anything more from the palace on this topic. I would I would assume that they want to let it die down, and then the next thing we will likely hear is uh, more more talk and plans for the Platinum Jubilee celebrations. Crystal Gabansing with us, Europe Bureau Chief for Global News, talking about Prince Andrew and where he finds himself uh, after hanging out with U.S. financier uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Crystal, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You're very welcome. Take care. All right. Interesting stats. Uh, just reading 81% of Canadians fully vaxxed 5 plus. 5 plus. Uh, 81%. That is still incredible when you think about it. Uh, school starts Monday. Uh, let's ch- uh, chat with Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist, professor of school of population public health, Ryerson University, with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. Thank you. Before we get to schools and such, uh, Quebec in the news quite a bit lately, obviously because of their anti-vax tax and such. Uh, oddly enough, announcing uh, just the other day that uh, they're going to drop the curfews uh, and and, uh, and lower those as well and loosen up restrictions uh, a bit. Uh, with all the chatter about Quebec, it was pointed out that they have per capita probably uh, the worst record, I think the most deaths and such, yet are obviously, uh, you know, aggressively uh, curfews, locking down, putting protocol in place. How do we explain high uh, rates when we have some of the toughest restrictions uh, in that province? Well, you always, when you look at a comparison like that, you need to look at the what they call the temporal association. In other words, were the uh, restrictions put in place, and then the numbers begin to keep on rising after that. Or, they did have an early, the, the early yeah. stages were particularly bad for them, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, they were as well, yeah. So really it's a case of uh, trying to match the appropriate response with the, uh, with the observed problem, and knowing, of course, a, there was a lag indicator, there's a lag phase there between the things actually occurring. But, but I think everybody's looking at the approach, and the public health people are generally saying, you know, that's really not what we want to see because in public health if you try and mandate something it's like like i don't know if you ever remembered studying a book in school a teacher said this is the book you all got to study and do a report on you hated that book for the rest of your life (laughs) Uh, but if you'd picked it up accidentally in a bookstore and read it you think this is fantastic stuff so if you mandate to do something you're not on board very much or if you do do it it's it's unwilling and you're not going to carry on doing it much better to give people a choice of some kind you know whether it's a case of well, if you're not vaccinated, you, you you can't do this, but you get the choice of either you're doing that or becoming vaccinated. The choice is always best. 
Are we at a crossroads here? Because it was interesting. I was looking at a, a graphic on one of the news stations earlier this week, and uh, they showed half the country is open. Uh, the schools are open. Saskatchewan West, Alberta, uh, British Columbia, however, Manitoba East, everything was closed. But when they went to each jurisdiction, each one was upset that what they were doing. They wanted to be doing what the opposite side of the country is doing. How difficult is this to balance, especially when we're heading back here on Monday? Oh my goodness! Yeah, you've you, you sort of nibbled away at a bit of the problem there, but it's it's huge. Uh, we are seeing, though, to be honest, if I can use a five-letter word, we're seeing we're using a a a, a, panda, a, um, a, a paradigm shift here. We're seeing it. In other words, the uh, in this process now, where the virus is clearly in control and it's it's just spreading what like wildfire. We've never seen it before like this. It's it's rapidly reaching a point where we're going to be in this endemic phase where we'll see little bushfires on little outbreaks here and there and individual cases and mainly among the unvaccinated, of course. But this will be the, the endemic ocean, uh, much different to the, the spiky uh, uh, pandemic that we've seen in the last two years. And that means that this thing will, will be the number five coronavirus in the set of four we already have that's been around for decades causing different kinds of common colds and by that time the whole population will be fairly immune to it much like a seasonal influenza which all the influenzas now vaccine and the seasonal influenzas all were once um, pandemic influenzas all the a influenzas and they sort of settle down because we're immune to them they're not new anymore and they become just background uh, pathogens it'll be like that what are you expecting? Obviously, kids in Ontario back to school Monday. What are you expecting a week, two weeks from then? I expect to see an increase. Uh, it's happened every single time with the best intentions and all yeah. the precautions. But let's just hope it's not very much. Remember that part of this paradigm shift is that we're not now simply saying, let's stop the spread simply because we don't want all these people to get it. We're really stopping the spread because we don't want the hospitals to become collapsed mm. and unable to look after your broken leg or your mis- mis- miscarriage or, or car accident or cancer needs to be removed. That's the thing we're trying to protect. The, the virus itself is showing signs that it doesn't affect the lower lungs. Uh, if you're unvaxxed, it still can be a very serious yeah. illness. But if you're vaxxed, you know, it's going to be fairly mild. So we've got to stop it spreading for that purpose. And so that's really the whole purpose. It's the game. The rules of the game are changing a little bit. Dr. Timothy Sly with us, epidemiologist and School of Population Public Health, Ryerson University. Professor, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Bye-bye. Catch up on the news and information you've missed. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. The latest news is that um, Rod Phillips, uh, in the Conservative Party, remember he was uh, got in trouble this time last year for uh, going south. Uh, he is stepping down in February, which oddly enough is about time to catch the plane for St. Bart's. Uh, yeah, there you go. And you wonder why it's hard to get people to run on politics. Uh, feel free to uh, jump into the fun. Love to hear from you, uh, as always. Uh, of course, we've been very vocal on uh, sort of the change of tone in around uh, COVID-19 in the last week or so, and it showing and uh, shining more light on our neglected healthcare system, which is indefinitely in, in need of some sort of funding formula change, whatever that 
that is, who knows. Uh, but we seem to be looking at other things as opposed to focusing on that. And I think as we get through this pandemic, it turns into an endemic. Uh, hopefully the focus continues and we do start uh, looking at this. Uh, many politicians have said it's too soon. I think it's a perfect time. Let's bring in Dr. Catherine Smart, president of the Canadian Medical Association, and is with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks for having me, Scott. Doctor, do you see the the tone changing? Is this less about the dangers of COVID-19 and more about the dangers of a neglected uh, healthcare system that uh, that needs to be fixed? Well, I think, you know, we really have both problems front and centre right now. We're still not through the emergency aspect of this pandemic, you know, with Omicron admission overwhelming hospitals yet again. We're still very much, I think, in damage control mode. But there's no question that we have to be still turning our sights to the future of the healthcare system because it's been neglected for so long. It's partly why we're struggling uh, so much as we continue to go through these COVID waves. So I think, you know, we're not through the emergency yet, but we can't necessarily always use that as as an excuse for not talking about where to next. You know, you bring up a valid point because many are talking about capacity issues now. Uh, And, you know, if if we have capacity issues and build them up for pandemics, then hospital beds sit empty. I think that's one extreme or the other. I mean, we had hallway medicine and and long lineups long before uh, COVID-19. Are you concerned that is this or hopefully as this winds down or we get to a different place that this will lose interest and we won't still be talking about it the way we are now? Well, I certainly hope not. I mean, as as you said, there's no question that our healthcare system was not working fantastically before all this happened. You know, we've had long wait times for many things, hallway medicine, hospitals, often really just kind of always teetering on the er- on the edge of full capacity. And then what happened, right, is COVID came along and just really pushed that totally over the edge. So this is not a new problem. It's, of course, been much more dramatic because of the pandemic. Um, and I think we need to really be serious about the kind of healthcare system that we want. You know, if anything positive could come out of this, I hope it's that it's become, I think, shockingly clear to all Canadians just how serious the issues in our healthcare system are. And I hope that that moves our, our leaders and government from beyond just sort of lip service to the healthcare system to really getting serious about what it's going to take uh, to bring it into the modern times. It seems we're either bragging about the system, and if anybody brings up changes, then it's uh, they immediately go to the opposite discussion about it becoming U.S. medicine, which, which of course, nobody wants to go there either. Uh, there's balance. There's a happy medium here. But it seems that because we, we seem to boast and brag about our health care system, because it is inclusive, and rightly so, that we don't seem capable of seeing the faults in it, don't seem capable of seeing that we've got all this great staff that are fried and burnt out and we need more and we need raises for these people who are obviously very important to our life um are we too busy patting ourselves on the back to see what's really wrong here yeah no i I couldn't agree with you more you know i I think this is the problem when we we end up with this sort of false dichotomy where we feel like we either have to say our healthcare system's great or we should go to two-tiered healthcare system. And, and the reality is, is not that. You know, I, I think because we are next door to the United States and their healthcare system has so many issues that when we compare our system to theirs and sort of the, the different issues that exist, it makes us feel good about what's going on. But I'm not really sure that's the comparator that we want to be using. So I absolutely agree with you. We need to get past sort of this sense that because we have pride in the fact we have universal health care, 
means that we can't really analyze how well is it working. And there's so much literature out there. You know, it's just very clear. Our system is not as universal as we think. That's one of the Mm -hmm. first issues. Um, You know, the amount of private dollars that people spend to access healthcare in Canada is much higher than in other countries because so many things aren't within the healthcare system. Um, You know, the funding and the dollars put into our healthcare system have been on the decline over time, and that's against an aging population with more chronic disease uh, going forward. So, you know, we we know we're not really keeping up. Um, And I think we have to, to just acknowledge that, yes, healthcare is important to Canadians, we, as a society, on average, value the idea of universal health care, and that's a Canadian value, uh, and that's great, and we can preserve that. But that doesn't prevent us from then realizing that our system does need some change. So I think we just need to get over the anxiety of admitting this fact and really get on with, with the change. And this is right the way across the country, isn't it? I mean, we're seeing it from east to west. Oh, absolutely. There's nowhere that hasn't, I think, been impacted in the same ways. And and I think we see similar issues across the country. You know, for example, access to primary care, which is so important for people's overall health, so important in saving dollars in the health system, preventing unnecessary utilization of hospitals, is a huge challenge. You know, 5 million Canadians without access to primary care. It's the gateway to the rest of our system. That is a huge problem and not everywhere there's literally nowhere that doesn't have that problem um so what that says to me is we have not obviously found a solution for that yet because if we had you know we'd see pockets where it was working well and then maybe pockets that were challenged but that is a universal issue across the entire country and it's it's similar i think in terms of the acute care piece you know long wait times for surgery of course some places doing slightly better than others but I think many Canadians would say that they feel the wait time they had for surgeries uh, was too long. So I think there's a lot to do to really improve services to better meet the needs of Canadians. Dr. Catherine Smart with us, president of the Canadian Medical Association. It's time to address the problem, and that is our neglected Canadian healthcare system uh, that COVID-19, of course, has exposed. Uh, and many in the healthcare were trying to expose it years ago. Doctor, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me, Scott. Take care. Coming! It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, Willerskin on the board, making their way from the newsroom, Lisa Pileski, Dave Woodward, around the virtual roundtable. Thank you, table heads, for joining us on this Friday edition of Hope You Are All Doing Well. Good afternoon. I'm happy it's Friday. Yeah. (laughs) I think a lot of people are saying that. All right. uh, Speaking of the future, uh, let's start with the poll question of the day, as we always do. Are you optimistic stage two uh, restrictions uh, will end January 26th? Uh, Of course, uh, our optimistic uh, pollers, uh, 81% no. Although uh, I did, I think I heard uh, Dr. Kieran Moore say that uh, that's what they were still aiming for. And uh, we'll see what happens. I'm not sure. uh, Well, who knows at this point uh, dave we'll start with you this time are you optimistic we're going to hit the stage two re- uh, restrictions ending by jan 26 i am going to stay optimistic i'm going to say yes they are uh, dr moore yesterday was saying that they still need to see more data but if you look at some of the statistics that we've seen today the fact that you know yes numbers are up yes we're going to see more hospitalizations but we may have already hit the peak here in hamilton And if we've already hit the peak in Hamilton, it may not be far away in other areas of Ontario. So uh, I'm going to stay optimistic and say, yes, we will reopen on uh, the 26th. I always thought hitting the peak was a lot more fun than this, though. Uh, (laughs) 
<laughs> All right, Lisa, what about you? Optimistic Ontario will hit the stage two uh, restrictions being lifted by Jan 26. Well, I'm going to happy to play the contrarian here and say that I am going to be the pessimist here. I think you're, we're still going to have it maybe extended by another week or so. It seems like they're, you know, they're, they're trying to, it, like Dr. Moore was saying yesterday, they do need more data. And then we see this new modeling uh, from the federal government today saying that, you know, yes, we may be approaching kind of the, the peak of cases, but hospitalizations and the impact on the healthcare system still expected to be devastating for you know, the rest of the, the month and into early uh, into early February. So I am going to say they're going to probably extend it by maybe a week or so. And that's just my prediction. Uh, I, ho- I hope I'm wrong because I really do feel for the businesses. And you do, re- you bring up a very valid point that because the cases peak, it's usually a couple of weeks after that before the hospital admissions peak too, because it's a, there is a lag there. Valid point. Uh, Will, what about you? You optimistic? <laughs> well, uh, here's my prediction. It will lift they will lift it uh on schedule and there's going to be a lot of people saying no it should have been a week agreeing with lisa in this situation i think I, that's what's going to happen uh, i love uh i love the uh the cartoon today in the hamilton yes. spectator it's bang on i mean it's just getting <laughs> nailed from both sides here all right uh will and i were joking about this off air uh mpp and long-term care minister rod phillips stepping down in january uh as we pointed out it's just in time for that vacation to saint bart's uh because remember last year uh he was one of the people that flew down uh, to some place when we weren't supposed to, uh, and obviously the season is coming back uh, as well. Uh, we heard Quebec's health minister resigned uh, this week as well, just prior to the anti uh, anti-vax tax stuff. So obviously some deflection there as well. Are you surprised more politicians don't step away either during? or post-pandemic. I can see a lot of people just saying, nah, that's it, I'm out. Dave, what are your thoughts? Yeah, actually, it's one of those things that I think it's a very difficult time to be in government. I think some people tend to think that when you're a part of uh, politics, it's a uh, you have a lot of, obviously, things that you need to deal with with your community, but it's a little bit of an easier ride for some people than others, right? Uh, yeah. Or at least that's the, the, the thought process. And I think with a pandemic, with not being able to, to make anybody happy I think that you're it's a, it's a tough place to be in and it's like a question that you asked a little while ago Scott was you know would you want to be leader right now absolutely not do you want to be a politician right now I don't know it's a hard sell it's a, it's a hard sell before a pandemic never mind yeah. uh, when you're with it and I think we're seeing that uh, you know I, was, I saw a statistic today so uh, Rod Phillips is one of seven people in the uh, yeah. progressive conservative caucus that say that they're not going to come back and that's in addition to the seven people uh, that were either turfed from caucus or left the PC caucus. So uh, Doug Ford's going to be, you know, kind of going through this uh, political, uh, through this campaign anyways, with 14 fewer MPPs than he started with. Uh, Lisa, your thoughts on all of this? You surprised or will you be surprised if more step away during uh, all of this? Well, no, not at all. I mean, I like like Dave is saying, it's the idea of being someone who has to make these difficult decisions. I know they're paid the big bucks for a reason. Like there's a reason that yeah. Rod Phillips flew to St. Bart's and was able to afford to do that. But, you know, you do also have he's to... He's also a businessman, too. He's not necessarily... Yeah, that too. They, well, he's leaving yeah, yeah. politics to yeah. get back into the Continue, private sector. Yeah. Like yeah. you can see yeah. 
Like it's it's very clear that uh, politics aren't easy at the best of times, and this has been the worst of times. So I am expecting to see more people resigning. And you have to ask yourself whether it's at the provincial level or the federal level, uh, you know, for the next election, who wants to win? You know, because you're going to have to clean up the mess. Uh could I jump in, Scott? I had yeah. a thought. I had a thought about this. Uh, you reminded me of when you talked with Kathleen Wynne earlier in the week, and you kind of talked to her a little bit about this, and she brought up a good point too. That uh, it, there's some people who react to a situation like this, and it is part of what makes you think about going yeah. into politics in the first place. Some people who who grip on tighter and think, no, 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 this is exactly yeah. where I gotta be. I'm gonna do this. I mean, eventually everyone reaches their point where they want to go to St. Bart's, but uh, I think yeah, that's. I'm not as surprised to see this because uh, uh, to see the people who are cl- sticking around. Yeah, that's a good point. If you really want to serve and you really want to make change, it's times like this where that sort of thing happens. So, you know, it could be, you could see a changing of the guard uh, uh, at many levels of, uh, of politics, uh, you know, municipal, uh, on, you know, provincial or what have you. All right. Uh, we're seeing some pretty cold uh, temperatures. I just looked, by the way, Negril, Jamaica is at 27, if anybody wants to take off down there, ah. as opposed to minus 27 up here uh, with the windshield. Do you like the cold? Do you embrace it? Do you concur? and go the opposite direction uh, what are your thoughts uh, dave we'll start with you are you into this or are you not uh, i'm no jay mcqueen uh and if you <laughs> but, yeah he's got a great backyard rink we no should kidding. head over there with a couple of wineskins. <laughs> i don't mind that idea but no I, I don't i don't i'm not a huge fan of the the winter i'm not a huge winter sports guy uh but i i enjoy skiing on occasion i i go out and run in this kind of weather it doesn't bother me my whole thing is that yeah you you're can... mr fitness now <laughs> Kind of, sort of. I run, and that's about it. Um, but I, I think the the for me, anyways, it, it's about uh, just make sure that you're wearing enough clothes. You're good to go as long as you're as you're prepared and and, and that kind of thing. So I, I appreciate that part about the winter. It's when I'm, you know, done the run and all the rest of it, where I'm on my way home, thinking, what did I do? Why am Lisa, I doing this? Lisa, do you embrace it or do you cocoon? Um, I think it's one of those things that, you know, we live here and this is the weather that we have and you might as well just, if you're going to, you know, you, there, you have no choice. You, this is what yeah. we're dealing with. And quite honestly, my brother lived up in none of it for a couple of years. Wow. And, and I would see the, uh, my sister-in-law would post like selfies on Instagram of she had like icicles in her eyelashes. So oh, when I saw <laughs> stuff like that, I was like, you know what? I will take Hamilton's cold temperatures. They're not great, but... Uh, it's not that bad. We don't have ice crystals as as a thing that we get in our weather forecast. Embrace or cocoon, Will, quick. No polar bear dip guy, but I'll embrace it. I like the cold. All right, there you have it. Thank you, Tableheads, as always, as we end the week off, at least uh, on something a little bit more positive. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, this time yesterday, we were talking about how uh, the Canadian government had reversed the decision uh, to make uh, to have vaccine mandates uh, in regard to taking trucks back and forth across the border. U.S. truckers, the Canadian mandates, uh, sorry, the vaccine mandates and associated restrictions for Canadian truckers have received a lot of attention in the past couple of days. Now, a statement that was provided in error yesterday by a spokesperson for the Canadian Border Agency says truckers uh, and obviously truckers are understandably frustrated because we were understanding that this was going to be reversed yesterday and then apparently that was a miscommunication. So where is it? 
And that being said, does it matter uh, if one country has one set of rules and another uh, another set of rules? We need this solved uh, bilaterally. Let's bring in Stephen Laskowski, president of the Ontario Trucking Association, and with us now. Stephen, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thanks for having me on the show. So what happened yesterday, and, and what is the, what is, give us an update. Where do we stand now? So uh, what happened yesterday, I mean, the government of Canada uh, issued a press release and said that they had uh, issued something earlier than the day in error. And so uh, with regards to what's happening tomorrow is uh, all Canadian uh, trucks and American trucks entering into Canada, drivers will have to be vaccinated. All right, and obviously this a concern because there's a percentage that isn't. Do we know what that is? How much of a void do you think this is going to leave in the supply chain? Sure. So there are 120,000 Canadians engaged in cross-border transport. Uh, based on our surveys, uh, we estimate that our uh, our population of driving population that are unvaccinated will fall anywhere between in the 10 and 15% range. So you can expect anywhere between 12 and 18,000 people leaving that supply chain. Uh, now, obviously, uh, yesterday the, that was going to be reversed, but then we understand in the United States next week they have something similar coming into effect. So uh, at the end of the day, won't you need a vaccination to go either way in and out in the borders? That, that's an excellent point and a point we've been making throughout this process that Ottawa and Washington need to move together uh, towards introducing a policy uh, that works for both countries. And for uh, your listeners' benefit, what we've been asking for is not a question of, of if, but when. Uh, there are very few countries in the world that don't have entry-exit requirements around COVID vaccinations. So what we had said to both countries is, we have a very fragile supply chain. We have a significant driver shortage. Let's work together between the two countries, the two industries, and more importantly, and most importantly, the industries we serve to find a date that makes more sense for implementation. So as of next week, once the U.S. policy kicks in, both countries will then be the same, will they not? And uh, for, if I'm, what I'm understanding you correctly, what you're looking for in your organization is to just extend this to allow more time for truckers both ways to get vaccinated. So it's not just, it's primarily not the vaccinations. You are correct, first of all. You are correct with what, what uh, summing up our point. Yes, giving us more time will increase vaccinations uh, amongst the, the amongst the minority who aren't. But it will also allow the supply chain, the customers we have, to adjust to having less trucks. Because when this, whenever this mandate comes in, we will never have 100% of the trucking population vaccinated, just like we will never have 100% of the Canadian population vaccinated. So let's learn to adjust to having less trucks in, in the in the north south supply chain and give us some time or more importantly our customers time to how to adjust to that how long will this last this delay last because when you think about it i mean if they're not getting a vaccine now will they get one later is this going to be a long-term thing where you know as soon as you announce this boom you've lost 10 or however many percent of your of your fleet so what is happening in the supply chain is a couple things one uh we're short 23,000 drivers in the third quarter of 2021. So there are no drivers to replace those. What is happening, though, is Canadian trucking operations that have both U.S. and domestic-only operations right. are trying to switch drivers around. 
Right. However, that may be a very short-term solution. The issue here is that the Canadian government in November also announced a domestic vaccine on the uh, mandate on the Canadian uh, federally regulated uh, trucking sector. So once that goes into place, then you'll really start to see some issues. So what would you like to see? How would you like to see this handled? So uh, with regards to the border mandate, it, as, I, as I mentioned earlier in this interview, it was to push the date out, give the supply chain some more time uh, with regards to making adjustments. And quite frankly, then it will allow us to, again, continue to educate that minority of drivers on the benefits of vaccines. We've heard from the medical community time and time again, the best way to, to deal with vaccine hesitancy is education. And sometimes education takes more time. Good point. Uh, what about a career here? Uh, people are looking for a job. Is this worth looking into? I mean, obviously, we hear more and more about shortages. So, uh, you know, our sector in November launched uh, a social media campaign attracting Canadians to the occupa- occupation. Uh, Canada moves by truck. The U.S. economy moves by truck. Uh, there'll always be a job in the trucking industry, and it's well beyond the, the driving a truck. There's office jobs, there's jobs in the warehouses, accounting. You name it, we have a job for it. So great career, lots of opportunity. There you go. Stephen Laskowski with us, president of the Ontario Trucking Association, trying to maneuver around vaccination and crossing borders. Stephen, thanks for the time. Be, uh, be well. Good luck. Thanks a lot for the opportunity. Take care now. Lots to talk about uh, today politically with Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Hope you are too, Scott. Yes, thanks so much. Uh, all eyes uh, and attention on Quebec this past week for uh, their anti-vax tax and such. It pretty much went across the country and actually around the world. Uh, was this all a distraction? Was it to take the attention away from the premier or a health minister that resigned? Uh, how do you see all of this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a terrible precedent to start. I really do. And It's not a position of whether people agree or disagree with those who are unvaccinated. You know, I am vaccinated completely. I've had both my shots and my booster shot. I am completely vaccinated up until this point based on my age group and based on obviously the various demographics that I follow. But at the same time, and most Canadians are, but at the same time, obviously, there is a percentage that are not. And I just think when you start creating various barriers or bars and you start creating an us versus them society and you go down a path where yeah right now you're targeting the unvaccinated but you're also opening the door the pandora's box if you'd like that analogy into the possibility that other types of taxes will be levied on the people who do things that may not be the norm may not be the way the majority thinks on the issue i just think it's a very bad precedent to set and whether it was done as a distraction or not that's a good question. Probably to some extent it was, based on what uh, Quebec, the Quebec government dealt with, with their public health official, who obviously the chief, uh, who resigned uh, rather abruptly. Although some people believe that was more of a case of frustration with the way the Legault government handled certain things, including re-implementing a curfew, once again in the province. But regardless, I just think the anti-vax tax is a bad, bad strategy. And It's almost malicious in a way why people would want it. There are different ways that obviously we can handle or treat the unvaccinated. That includes if, you know, based on the province, 
Mm-hmm. It could include limitations in terms of where you can go, what hours you can go into, what jobs you can work at, uh, whether you can go into grocery stores or other things. There are certain ways that you can obviously combat it if you desire. But to add an additional tax, terrible strategy. Do you think it'll even see the light of day? And it seems odd that the day after it's we're talking about it, now the curfews are lifted, which if it's that yeah. bad, what are you doing? Well, the, the, but the curfew is obviously the second time that's happened in Quebec. Yes. They've done this before. And so yeah. there is a precedent already. It wasn't the first time the Legault government put it down. No, it just well, seems odd I'm that you're introducing a vax. Either. It, I think it's silly. Yeah. I agree. It just seems odd that you're taking one precaution yet releasing uh, another. What about the prime minister's response to this? Well, the prime minister has been ambivalent, and I guess that's not terribly shocking because that's the way Justin Trudeau typically is when it comes to new taxes. He tends to be ambivalent or he's very open to the idea, one or the other. Um, But he is basically saying that he's not going to rule it out in a Canadian perspective, and he hasn't come out one way or the other very strongly probably because he's trying to gauge reaction. That's the way he typically governs, so it's, it's not terribly surprising. Other political leaders do it, too, so I'm not just picking on Trudeau for doing that. But um, I don't know what he plans to do, Scott. I would be shocked, quite frankly, if he did this on a national level, because I think there's just enough frustration on the part of not just conservatives, but also liberals and others who have spoken out, saying that this just may not be the best path to follow. If Quebec wants to be the model and operate in its own way, and if it doesn't contravene the Canada Health Act, it's up to them to make that decision. I just can't see this happening nationally, and I think it's the sort of thing that a lot of people across the country, even if they, for whatever reason, voted for Trudeau one, two, or three times, I think it'll frustrate them so much that I don't think he'll go near the issue. Uh, do you think this discussion is changing? Uh, the Prime Minister and, and many focusing on that, those last few percentages that, that need to be vaccinated as if getting everybody vaccinated will save the healthcare system. It seems he's trying to divide and point to that small percentage of the population as opposed to talking about the real problem, which is a neglected healthcare system and yep. needed of some sort of funding formula change and, and, and just keeps pushing that off onto the provinces. Uh, rather than addressing the issue that, that you know, uh, long before the COVID-19 uh, existed, there's a funding issue here, and he's yep. he's picking on the unvaccinated instead of addressing the real issue here. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. That has been the issue. Now, Trudeau's obviously not the first prime minister to kick the can down the road or ignore yep. the issue completely. Yep. Many other prime ministers of both political stripes have done it. But, yes, I think that really that is what he should be laser-focused on. But then again, I think any prime minister should be laser-focused on that. And there are many things that we should be doing with the Canada Health Act, whether you believe in, say, the concepts that I believe in, which there should be more private health care, that we should basically bombard the Canada Health Act, blow it to smithereens, but balance it out, have a two-tiered system properly, not just in certain things like, you know, uh, MRI machines and various diagnostics that we do for eyes. I think that we need it basically across the board so that not to create a system where people can't afford to be in, because I'm not calling for an end to universal health care. I just think that there should be more of a balance. But quite frankly, Scott, this is not the prime minister who's going to do it. 
I don't know which prime minister would, though. <laughs> uh, do do we have a choice here? I mean, is because everybody's talking about the exhausted health care system, even more so than the effects of COVID nineteen. So, is there a point? Are we hitting a point of no return here, where this is going to have to be addressed, like you said, whether it's through uh, additional private funds or what have you? I mean, I can only speak from experience. Since I've been doing this, it's almost been twenty six yeah, years. The answer would be no. I have, I've literally talked about it since the very beginning, Scott. I really have. And lots of other columnists, lots of other analysts, lots of other politicos, radio hosts like yourself, TV hosts. We can go through, run the gamut. Lots and lots of people talk about in this country that Canadian health care has just basically reached its limit and it needs to be fixed. But you also know, as well as many have discussed, that health care in Canada is the third rail Canadian politics. Touch it and you will die, so to speak. And that's why politicians don't go near it. That's why political leaders don't go near it, even though it is in dire need of some sort of fixing. Even if you don't go as far as what I'm suggesting, you need some modifications. You need some reforms, far more than we currently have. But someone, unfortunately, has to be willing to stand up and do it differently, that being a prime minister in charge. And I think it's very hard to do, especially because with a lot of politicians, right-leaning or left-leaning, who follow the polls, follow opinions, and know what Canadians want, they know that there's this unfortunate double standard, the Cash-22, that many Canadians want changes to Canadian health care, but they don't want to pay more for it. Yep, there you go. That's the way it can happen. Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, as always, thank you so much for your time. Be well. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care. The truth and only the truth. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Beginning of all of this, we're thinking of all the things that uh, the global pandemic has taken away from us. Uh, Why we all jump for toilet paper is beyond me, but that's behind us now. And and, and now we're seeing over the course of this two-year global pandemic with people and absenteeism, getting sick, what have you, it's literally affected all aspects of the supply chain. Now we have an issue with regard to uh, trucking and freight crossing from Canada to the end of the U.S. and vice versa. Uh, Canadian truckers upset they're going to be tested or, sorry, uh, have to have their vaccine to come back into the country. Uh, But the United States doing something very similar a week later. so uh, obviously everybody's in the same boat. However, what this is going to, the end result of all of this, so says the Ontario Trucking Association, could see a 10 to 20% reduction in operators and goods going to and from and across the border and such. Let's bring in Ofer Barron, Distinguished Professor of Operations Management, Academic Director, Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto and with us now. Ofer, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, thank you very much. Same for you. Obviously, we've talked a lot about supply chain issues. Now we have uh, the situation with truckers on going both ways are going to uh, certainly by the end of the month need to be vaccinated in order to get into the uh, the other country. Uh, Canada first and U.S. will be later on uh, this month from what we understand. How much of an impact is this going to have and, and how long will it last? Because even the Trucking Association says this won't be in a, a quick fix. Yeah, so how long it's going to last is probably related more to how drivers will react and will drivers who are now unvaccinated would uh, vaccinate themselves as a result from this uh, extra pressure. In terms of the impact, I uh, hope it will not be too large. We've seen a lot of uh, disruptions in the supply chain over the last couple of years, starting from toilet paper to PPE, uh, 
chicken wings and so so on. So hopefully the impact is not going to be too large. The thing that is probably more concerning is the combination of people being sick and mm. people not being vaccinated so they cannot so if you combine both the impact of sick people and the people who are not vaccinated, maybe it's more than 20 or 30 percent of the truckers and that can result in some larger disruptions. Uh, there was a driver shortage in this industry prior to the pandemic, from what we understand. Add this into the mix, obviously it will complicate things. Uh, um, is this a problem that we are going to see on, on store shelves? I think so. The things which are relatively low priority may be delayed a little bit longer than uh, others. So obviously uh, logistics companies would prioritize perishable goods like uh, food and so on. So hopefully we will not see any shortages of uh, food on the shelves. But some other um, things that uh, can be stored for a longer time, maybe delayed a little bit more. And we may also see some mild increases in prices as we've seen before during this last couple of years. Uh, How important is it that both countries are on the same page here, meaning Canada and the U.S., and are they? Because everybody was upset uh, earlier on this week in Canada because it looked like things were not going to be lifted. Then it was some misinformation, and they were lifted, and then it's back to uh, the way it was. But that being said, uh, it happens. the same thing happens in the U.S. uh, a little later in the month. Are both countries working together on this? Uh, Why not even just pick the same day to start off? this yeah yeah i think it's a good question there should be some coordination here i think to some extent uh, canada as a first mover may have helped uh, the u.s policymakers to decide hey it's essentially it's going to be there anyhow let us uh, further support this movement of requiring vaccination from uh, truckers uh, many, some trucking associations have said, or companies have said, uh, and I guess this, obviously the bigger ones, uh, they can perhaps move the, the truckers that were once going across the border and keep them on more domestic routes and other ones, uh, shift back to going, uh, cross border and such. Will that be enough to alleviate any stress? Uh, it will be enough to limit some of the stress. Uh, I'm sure for some companies it's going to be easier. For some companies it's going to be harder. The larger companies typically have a little bit more flexibility. And, you know, if you are typically driving uh, nationally and you have the opportunity to drive internationally, that may not be such a big change. So they are probably a little bit better suited to deal with these changes. Uh, this, it, it appears, and this is what we're getting, the information we're getting from the Trucking Association, is that this could be a problem that exists for a while, simply because of the shortages of drivers prior to the pandemic, and now obviously this uh, uh, complicating it. What, what does this industry need to do to attract more drivers? How do they, and I guess this is virtually in any, every industry now, uh, but what do they need to do? How can they alleviate this problem that's just been exacerbated by the the border issues? Yeah, I think this is a great question. It's a global-wide uh, question. Uh, trucking is uh, hard work. You spend a lot of time away from uh, home. And uh, you drive many hours. Uh, we've seen similar concerns, um, I don't know, a month or two ago when we had uh, floods in uh, BC where truckers got stuck there. 
So I think uh, at the at least from Canada point of view, uh, there should be some action at the uh, governmental level of, of Canada to try and, and get more people to work in these jobs. I've seen uh, some articles that are um, suggesting also to make uh, this job a little bit more um, accommodating to women. Uh, many women are uh, being blocked from joining this job because it's tough uh, requirements on travel and so on. And that may be one uh, possibilities of uh, help to reduce the shortage uh, do you think that uh, do you think people think this is a growing industry? Because, again, many um, might think that we're moving away from this sort of thing. But as, as countries grow and expand, this will be an expanding industry, will it not? Uh, yes. Um, even if we'll start uh, managing supply chains a little bit more effectively a few years after this pandemic will pass, uh, as you suggest, with a uh, growing population, uh, growing cities, there is more and more demand uh, for uh, trucking. Uh, even if you think, you know, walking outside in, in my neighborhood, you see all the uh, delivery trucks uh, yeah. from Amazon, UPS, and so on. So even this last mile logistic is something that will probably increase. And uh, yeah, I think there is uh, something that... Um, we can be done, in, we should be doing in general to help reduce the stress that uh, truckers are facing these days. Ofer Barron with us, Distinguished Professor of Operations Management, Academic Director, Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto, talking about the trucking industry and supply chain management. Ofer, thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you very much. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye. Oh, Scott Radley going to be joining us right now. Uh, coming up after the 6 o'clock news is the Scott Radley Show. Columnist with your Hamilton Spectator and with us now. Scott, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Doing fine, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, can you decode what is going on in and around the Australian Open and uh, who gets to play and who doesn't get to play? Who's vaccinated? Who isn't? Where is this going? Uh, so, no, uh, is the short answer. And... Um, <laughs> You know, it, it is. It does seem rather ironic that a tennis tournament is requiring this much time in courts. Yeah, uh, ba boom, right? I mean, look, yeah. it's. Um, but yeah, it, it, who knows what what is going to happen at, at some point? Because they did, I think they did. Did they not delay the start of this for a day or two just to figure it out? They're going to have to get going, and then what? Uh, who knows? I mean, look, it, there are those Scott and. and probably a lot of them who think that the way Australia has handled this has been excellent because they have been merciless. I mean, they've been ruthless as far as yeah. their COVID handling. And there's others who have said, you know, um, ruthless is not always good. You may get results, but at what cost? And, um, you know, this is like so many other things with COVID. Um, we're going to find out, I think, not now, history, and not even like long-term history, in the next five, six, seven years, we're going to find out in the a- attempts to control this, what did it cost us? And I don't just mean lives or money. I mean, did it cost us other things? And this is kind of that. Um, I mean, a, a tennis tournament is, of course, a minor thing in the grand scheme of life, quite honestly, unless you're Novak Djokovic. Um, but, you know, we're going to find out what this has really cost us as far as the decisions we made and how it changes long-term changed our way of life. 
They're going to be studying this in universities for decades, uh, from every standpoint, from every industry. Um, I guess the issue with Australians is, you know, as you said, we've been made to jump through hoops, or they have, and 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 you know, buckled down with all of this, and then you know, Mr. Rich Tennistar comes in and kind of you know, uh, flukes the rules, uh, flouts the rules. So at the end of the day, can you ask the citizenry to do something and then let celebrities or Sports figures buy? No, no, and and on that note, uh, I, you know, I, I'm in agreement. On that note, I think you know yeah. you, you cannot ask the lowest person on the totem pole to go through hardships in life and then ignore the same rules for people who are famous. I, I, I would, or politicians, or anyone else. I agree. I mean, how many politicians have we seen? over the last 20 months or whatever it is now, Scott, 21 months, 22 months, whatever, um, who have found themselves in trouble because they've been part of the rule-making apparatus yeah. and then broke the rules. And, you know, it's... Um, Not going to see Rod Phillips do that now. He's uh, bailing before the plane well, leaves. There you go. <laughs> do you think There's that's a coincidence or what? I do think it's a coincidence. I think probably... Um, you know, I don't know why he's leaving now. I don't think it really... And happened. many have. And we talked about this earlier. I mean, it must be so difficult to go through and, and be a politician or leader at any level at this point. And we're also talking earlier that who wants to be elected next? Who wants to fix this and take us out of well, it? Good luck. Well, here's the thing. I, I think the next person up at every level is in a great position. It's like yeah. it's like being the politician that takes over after a horrible recession or after a war or something. Can only go up. Exactly. Exactly. I think, like, yeah. I don't care what Andrea Horvath and Stephen Del Duca and anyone else and, and whoever across the border, across all the provinces, I don't care what the opposition leaders say. Deep in their heart of hearts, they are so thankful they did not have to be in power yeah. during the last yeah. two years. Yeah. They can, they can say they would have liked to. They can say they would have done things differently, and they might have done things differently. I'm not suggesting they wouldn't have. But deep down, they are thrilled because all the people who are in charge are in charge and standing up there getting winged off. And across the spectrum, all different parties, it's not just about one party or another. You are the luckiest person in the world if you are a politician who did not have to make hard decisions during the last two years. Good point. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time, and have yourself a great weekend. You too. Enjoy it. Nice and cold. I know. Boy, is it ever. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Will and Lisa and Dave for all contributing today. And you as well, because without you, we couldn't do it. And that's why we leave it to you, the CHML listener, to have the last word. You know, Rob Phillips definitely looked at those weekend weather forecasts and had to say, work's not worth it. Time for Barbados! St. Barnes! Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. 
<laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.